Welcome to this week's Branding Bud podcast. I'm David Palaszczuk, author of the best-selling book, Branding Bud, The Commercialization of Cannabis, the first book on cannabis branding. I'm pleased to introduce my guest today, Allison Disney, a cannabis brand strategist and partner at Receptor Brands based in Chicago. Today, we'll be chatting about cannabis consumers and cannabis marketing. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Thanks for having me, David. You have spent almost two decades producing award-winning marketing campaigns for some of the world's best-known brands, including M&M, Ziploc, Bacardi, YouTube, Special K, Cheez-It, and Johnson & Johnson. Would you share about your CPG career and your transition into cannabis with us? Of course. um, I'd be happy to. So uh, I've spent the majority of my career um, prior to cannabis um, in Chicago in the agency um, networks here. Um, Chicago is sort of the heartland of consumer packaged goods, so that really gave me the opportunity to work on a variety of CPG brands um, in my career, everything from household chemicals uh, to Ziploc bags and food and snacks um, and beverages, uh, all the things that you can buy at the grocery store, um, I feel like. And I had the opportunity to work um, at a lot of the major agencies and holding companies um, the majority of my career was with BBDO and the Omnicom Network, and most recently in their London office at AMV, and here again in Chicago at Energy BBDO. Um, And actually, uh, it was when I was in London that I got my first introduction to uh, what was happening from a marketing and branding perspective in cannabis. Um, My husband is a plant scientist and a botanist. And he was given the opportunity um, to uh, work at uh, an outdoor cultivation in the United States. He convinced me after having uh, moved our family to the UK for uh, my career that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity to get into the cannabis industry at this really special time. So uh, we packed up and moved back to Chicago um, where he started his venture and, you know, dinner table conversation just uh, became more and more focused on these exciting things he was doing in, in cannabis. And finally, one day I had to ask him, like, well, what are the brands like? What's the what's happening from a marketing standpoint in the space? Um, and that was, uh, you know, the beginning of um, uh, that was the beginning of, of my journey. And I joined up with a, a small group of contractors that really um operated as an interim marketing group for a cannabis company, a startup. And after uh, a little less than a year of that activity, we we sort of looked around and appreciated that the industry was just reaching this point where it's becoming more competitive. There were more and more brands um, entering the space every day. Certainly new licensees, this new markets um, came online with regulated cannabis. And we decided to... Um, formalize receptor brands and start offering our services uh, to new new clients and new operators. But yeah, I really, uh, I blame and credit my husband for the crossover into the cannabis space um, because of his love of plants. Wow, that must be incredible. Um, <clears throat> like you said, conversation over dinner, just in terms of uh, plant science and uh, branding and what's taking place in the market, not only when he first started, but even more so now, I bet. Absolutely. Well, the dinner, dinner, uh, the dinner table conversation has certainly gotten a lot less interesting because all we do is talk about cannabis now from every, <laughs> from every side. <laughs> um, 
But no, it, it really is fascinating because, um, you know, as a brand marketer, I've always thought of the brand experience um, from not only just the advertising and the marketing um, that you see, you know, in media, but all the way how, how your brand pulls all the way through that product experience, right? Your, your marketing and your advertising sets an expectation for what that product experience is going to be like. And, you know, he is on the ground floor of, um, you know, creating the next generation of, of uh, cannabis um, for people to consume. And um, it's really fascinating to hear about what kind of innovations happening on, on that side, the cultivation side, and then to see what's happening from a marketing innovation standpoint too. Without each other, you know, they're just not as important. Absolutely. I mean, I, it, you know, it's depending on who you talk to in the space, um, certainly people with uh, consumer packaged goods backgrounds or R&D backgrounds or um, whatever uh, expertise people have in their approach to cannabis, um, you know, you get different responses when you ask people about the innovation opportunity in the space because there's been so many, everything in cannabis feels so new already for um, many people um, because the industry is so new. Um, but I really feel like we've just scratched the surface in terms of innovation from a product standpoint, even from a marketing standpoint, certainly from a brand perspective. Um, there is so much room for proliferation in this space, even within the segments that already exist. I think it's going to be a really, I think 2022 is going to be a really exciting year um, for innovation. And uh, it's only going to get bigger from from there. It's really exciting to be a part of a category that has so much organic growth after uh, working in consumer packaged goods for so long, you know, on some real real household um, names. So let's talk about the basics of, of, you know, marketing and CPG. How is marketing cannabis different from marketing other products? I think the biggest difference is the speed at which this category changes. I mean, it's funny. I think a lot of people probably speak to the regulations. Um, I've been lucky in my consumer packaged goods uh, career that I've worked on a lot of different regulated categories in the past, whether that is some of those, you know, household um, products, or um, I also worked on Nicorette and some smoking sensation products for Johnson and Johnson uh, and, and certainly the spirits portfolios as well. And I think when you've worked on globally regulated categories before, uh, the regulations in cannabis are actually a little less intimidating than they might be for, for newer marketers. Um, what I think the biggest change has been from some of my past life uh, activity is just the speed of this category. So, you know, we've seen within the span of a few months, the addressable market size just in the U.S. grow by, you know, multiple states at a time um, or, you know, with so many new entrants coming into the space, who your competitors are today as a brand might not be the same competitors you have tomorrow. Um, there's just the rate of change in the space is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I think uh, that that tension of being um, single-minded and having a vision for what you want your brand to be like, but being uh, able to pivot and um, be competitive in a marketplace that's changing so often makes it really unique to other categories that I've ever worked in before. Rules and regulations are changing. Um, states are opening up. Are consumers changing? I mean, who who are the consumers that you're appealing to? Well, it's a little bit of a chicken and an, and an egg in my mind. So I, I I always encourage our clients, especially when they're in their, those early um, strategic stages of, of our relationship or planning a program for them, to think about our brand 
or um, the consumer in the category outside of cannabis to start, right? Um, this has been a particular point of conversation as I've been talking to more people about the beverage space and how um, consumables are changing so quickly. You know, as a consumer, you only have the opportunity to drink so many volumes of liquid <laughs> in a day, right? You're only going to have so many glasses of whatever you're going to have in a day. Outside of whether that's a cannabis-infused beverage or not, you know, you're, as a brand, you're now competing with things outside of the cannabis category. So in that way, I feel like consumers, our approach to how we think about consumers and brand strategy is very similar to other categories because you really have to think about them as a person first, understand, you know, what is, what's happening in their life, what's happening in culture, um, what are their needs so that you can find the role for your cannabis product to fit within that. On the flip side, with a category that's changing so much, you know, consumers have more choice than ever in consumer packaged goods for sure. But in cannabis, even your options change, you know, on a weekly, on a weekly basis, on a, certainly on an annual basis, the number of things you could buy or might have bought in a year could be really vast. So that has to drive a little change in consumer behavior as well, right? If you are, have always been a flower consumer, um, that might be because that was the only thing that was available in your market for the first year of, of legalization, right? So um, certainly your behavior is going to change as uh, more new and interesting things um, appear at shelf as well. In New York, you know, the converse is true where if you had a, a medical uh, license, they didn't sell flour because they didn't think patients would smoke so or should smoke. Not only are your choices varied from state to state and tied down by regulations, but um even often branding is as well. Absolutely. And, you know, getting, taking even a step further back or maybe in, in cooperation with thinking about consumers is we approach strategy with our clients. You know, it's that marriage of like, what are your consumer needs? But also as a business, what are you really trying to do? Are you trying to enter a market and steal share from existing cannabis competitors? Are you trying to steal share from other cat non-cannabis categories? Um, or are you really trying to create something new, you know, just truly innovating in a novel way um, and, and trying to introduce a behavior or an occasion or a product to answer a need that hasn't been solved for before? So, you know, it's really about marrying, you know, what's your goal um, as a business? And then from a consumer perspective, how are you helping to answer a need or solve a problem for them? And once you find that intersection, you know, there's really... It all comes down to, to execution at that point. It's interesting. I've spoken to, obviously, a number of brand owners. And oftentimes, as you said, they don't necessarily know who their current consumer is, but they know who their target consumer is. And they know how they can fit into that lifestyle. So so they often look for the need states or the rituals of, of a particular consumer persona. Uh, and, and tried to land there. But it's also intriguing because this year, uh, or maybe the last two years, rather, people have really been in a different place than, than they've normally been. So someone that might have smoked all of a sudden finds themselves not with the moment to themselves. You know, now they're staying at home, working from home. Their kids were home, perhaps. They can't light up. They have to consume more discreetly. So it's interesting, too. I, I believe that people have been moved into different types of form factors because of, of their new environments over the course of the last two years during the pandemic. Talking about target audiences and core consumers, 
it's always important to have that target audience defined as best as you can in, in your mind. Um, because to your point, David, you can't control, you can't control everything, right? And you can't control the environment or the occasion necessarily that your consumer will use you ultimately, but you have to at least have a target or a goal in mind. Um, and then, you know, consumers are going to use your product and interpret your product the way that they want to ultimately. All you can do is try and set the best expectation possible uh, with the brand experience that you bring to life. And the example I always like to use, um, you know, uh, another uh, Midwest uh, CPG company, but, you know, Gatorade's always the classic example, right? Gatorade's built a tremendous brand on focusing on performance athletes as sort of the torture test for their benefit, which is hydration. But we all know as consumers, we use Gatorade for a lot of different things, mostly for our hangovers the day after we have um, an evening with a little too much to drink. So, you know, their focus on who their product is designed for and how they position it and how they introduce their ultimate benefit for consumers is really, really focused. But it's all in part of creating the brand world and brand experience that they want to imagine for people. But ultimately, people are going to use that and interpret that benefit, you know, in the way that it fits into their life. So you can't always control all the contextual things, but you can be mindful of them and at least be focused in your intention. As you're developing brands and marketing brands, do you engage different consumers with different products? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think the category is well-trained at the moment to talk about users in terms of their usage frequency. So we certainly get a lot of briefs that look that way, right? How do we approach people who are more in a discovery mode and uh, new to the category versus people who have been in it for a really long time? Um, a lot of our conversation is also around, you know, those medium to heavy users who are maybe... Uh, new to the regulated market as well, who know a lot about the category, but from a, you know, pre uh, a prohibition era um, context. So you definitely have to approach those different levels of familiarity with the category differently. Um, but, you know, to our discussion earlier as well, I think you also need to think about what are they looking for ultimately? Like, why are they even considering cannabis? Uh, you know, and what, what are the alternatives uh, that they could be purchasing for the occasion, you know, that they're looking to use it in. Um, those are all things that we like to think about in terms of uh, consumers and how we create something that's really specific for them while still having the appeal, you know, to grow people's business. The kind of curious community is probably bigger than the cannabis consuming community. And so it behooves brands to start appealing to those consumers that have yet to to jump into the pool, so to speak. I often equate this conversation with um, with swimming in a swimming pool. There are certain people that they'll just dive into the deep end. They're um, an expert swimmer. They have no issues with cold water. They'll just dive in because that's what they do. And then there's other people that need to dip their toe in at the very shallow end of the pool you know, again, maybe they're sensitive to the to the uh, temperature of the pool. Maybe they don't know how to swim. Maybe they need a life preserver. But the conversations you would have with all of those people to coax them into the pool is very different. I believe speaking to cannabis consumers and the curious consumer really warrants a different type of conversation with a different tone 
I don't know if if many of the cannabis marketers in the industry quite get that yet. I agree with your observation. And there's also an understanding in cannabis that everyone's everyone's trying to find um, that buyer right from a consumer perspective and marketing and advertising and creating your brand. You know, it can sometimes be a capital investment thing in, in the beginning. Right. So being clear about who you're trying to reach and, and what exactly you're doing for that consumer is really important because you don't want to have waste in your marketing and, um, you know, advertising budgets or your media budgets um, and all that time and effort that you're, you're spending to create that brand experience can be wasted if you're not reaching the right people. Um, so it's a really important thing to define. And I, again, I think it has to be defined in the context of your business objective too, right? And we've seen this a lot with some of our clients that we've been working with, you know, for um, an extended period of time now, where, you know, especially in the early days of the category, in order to grow your business, you had to help grow the category with those kind of curious and new users. Like it, it, there were all the markets were early markets or newly regulated markets. So bringing people in to the regulated side was the way to grow the business. I think now we're reaching enough of a critical mass, at least from um, the multiple states that, are, that have legalized or as more of these brands mature and start to enter into different markets of different levels of maturity that, you know, there's also a lot of volume in those people that have come to the regulated market and are those medium to heavy users, right? So then you're starting to talk about how do I really approach my marketing plan, depending on if I'm trying to grow the size of the pie, right, and have maybe less frequent, more or less frequent buyers, or really capture that volume, that short term volume, potentially with a, a smaller or more niche group of people. Um, it, it again, you know, being intentional before you get into the cannabis industry or start building your brand to make sure that you're really um, getting the best return on your investment in terms of your marketing strategy is is really important. And all of these things are consideration. And as you move to more and more markets, it becomes harder and harder because every market is kind of in its own life stage at the moment, depending on when it legalized and how familiar the consumers are with the regulated category. You make many great points. I think the first one which you've said um, twice so far, and it's really important that you reiterated it, which is know what your objectives are. Know what you're, you're seeking to, to create or to move or to get traction on. And the second thing you said was essentially by having that objective you know, from the get-go, you're able to pull the right levers. And, and I think as we're talking through this topic, it starts to, it really begs the question, are there different tactics when trying to sell a product versus build brand awareness? And even if I go further, do you know of any cannabis brands that are starting to build brand awareness outside of their jurisdictions that they could actually sell in? Is this a, a strategy, so to speak? I, I, absolutely. I think we've actually just kind of reached that critical point in the last year, maybe, when you're really starting to see some of these brands permeate markets and, and reach a level of awareness, maybe in states where they don't even have distribution yet. That's um, really interesting. I, I expect that they're probably in markets where they plan or hope to have distribution soon. But um, I think for those early stage operators or even for operators who are more mature and getting into new markets, you know, there's a lot from a product perspective 
effective. And just from a sales enablement standpoint, you need to do to build that distribution, make sure people can find you, you know, after you turn on some of that paid media or that advertising or PR spend, you want to make sure people can go find you. Um, right. And, and a lot of that is communicating to people what the benefits of your product are and perhaps why it's superior to some of the other things that you'll find, you know, at your dispensary today. Uh, but as you build that larger brand story and the good thing about brands is if you do invest there, they, they travel, they travel really well after you spend the time and, and resources to build them in, in the beginning. Um, then that brand and that reputation and expectation you've created for what that product experience is going to be like can travel across markets and, you know, state boundaries long before, uh, you know, your distribution might be able to reach um, those consumers. So, you know, I think it's some of the big ones, I'm sure they'd all be familiar to you, but, um, you know, someone sitting in the Midwest, like seeing, you know, cookies enter states like Michigan is really interesting. Uh, you know, we, Lowell Farms premium pre-rolls just reach the uh, shores of Illinois. Um, these are all brands, certainly if you're in the category or if you've ever traveled out West um, that are familiar um, and then it's sort of the anticipation of the products actually reaching you is really high. So um, I definitely think we're starting to see probably mostly um, those West Coast brands that have been building their product um, experience and brand experience for, for a bit longer than some of the others are starting to uh, reach the Midwest and certainly uh, the East Coast as well. But, you, you know, um, once you've reached the Midwest, you know, you've reached the masses. So. Cookies, I think, is a great example of a lifestyle brand. Cookie sells T-shirts and hats and hoodies and sweatpants at Zoomies, which is a, a skateboard shop. I believe there's 700 of them in shopping malls across the country, perhaps uh, even in Canada. And what they deliver is really lifestyle apparel, which initially started off as skateboarding, but has really shifted toward cannabis. So... Cookies has entered the national market in terms of a lifestyle brand. And now people are starting, for example, in Illinois, starting to see cookies, the, you know, the cannabis brand show up in the dispensaries. And I think they've done a great job at working both ends against the middle, showing up in communities and in, in retail where, where perhaps they were unexpected. Not too long ago, I saw a young kid with a cookies uh, hoodie, a very young kid. And I was waiting online and I actually said to his mother, wow, I can't believe uh, he's got a cookies hoodie. And she looked at me and she said, why do you say that? And I said, do you know what cookies is? And she said, it, it's a skateboard brand. And I said, where'd you buy it? She said, we bought it at Zoomies. And I said, yeah, it's, I know you bought it. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me you bought it at Zoomies. It's not a skateboard brand, it's a cannabis brand. And she, you know, her mouth hit the floor like, oh, my God, my 11-year-old boy is wearing, um, <laughs> you know, a cookies hoodie. It's interesting how they've done that. It's interesting how they built the brand out. And now they're following up with, you know, you know with cannabis. And uh, it's brilliant in many ways. And I think it's, it's working in an organic way, you know, in a way that makes sense versus maybe a celebrity brand coming into the market and, and trying to use that star power. Cookies has really done it in, in a very organic, culturally relevant way. Yeah, I think Cookies is a great example. And um, it's also a great example of a lifestyle brand, to your point, that is really 
caught fire. Um, but I think they do a lot of things really intentionally that have really helped them build the brand to the success that, that it is today. You know, we talk to a lot of clients who say, I want to build a cannabis lifestyle brand, right? Or even in my pre-cannabis days, everyone would love to create a lifestyle brand um, because it means you've really sort of entered a, a an aspect of um, subculture or pop culture that's really relevant to people. Um, and I think the mistake that's made sometimes is people think a lifestyle brand is, you know, having great swag or um, creating, you know, great merch or, uh, you know, just creating cool things that like somehow um, catch fire or become really buzzworthy. And it's like, you know, catching lightning in a bottle. But I think the best lifestyle brands, really align themselves with the values of their consumers or that subculture uh, or a tribe of of people that um, already have a distinct culture and the brand is able to come alongside of it and enhance those uh, activities or enhance those aspects of their lifestyle in a really positive way. And I think cookies do a really good job of that. And to your point, you know, the fact that they were tapped into skateboard culture early on, there's an existing, you know, lifestyle there that they just came into and, and, and not to make oversimplify it. Right. <laughs> I know it's been a, a journey for that brand as well, but you know, they came along um, an area where consumers already had passion from a life uh, lifestyle perspective and were able to enhance it, you know, with uh, whether that's with entertainment value or um, uh, interesting uh, artifacts to, to enable that lifestyle. And, you know, having visited Cookies Retail in Southwest Michigan myself, they've done a really good job, I think, as they enter into new markets to bring all the best parts of their brand and that lifestyle into the brand experience. So there's a lot of um, Michigan's a really interesting category to me just because it's so open and um, it's very competitive. Right. You can have multiple dispensaries right next door to each other within a mile radius, depending on where you are in the state. and When I pulled into a cookies, you could tell it was a cookies brand experience, like the from what the staff was wearing. um, And this is, you know, pandemic time. So it was a pickup order. So this was without even entering the store. Um, You know, the building was blue. The branding was there, um, both from the staff that they had hired and the engagement with them and the level of customer service. But also the music that was playing outdoors while you were waiting in your car in line to pick up your order. Um, and your engagements with with the attendants, it felt it felt like I had a little slice of the West Coast a little bit in the middle of Southwest Michigan, and it really stood out from the other dispensary experiences, you know, within maybe a two mile radius. So they've it's not like they just show up with their logo and their brand assets, you know, visually and say, hey, we're here. They've done a really good job, I think, cultivating that brand experience and helping it travel with them as they go to new places because they, they have, they're a part of a lifestyle and they have a culture, a brand culture now that um, they can carry with them. Let's chat about the clients you serve, Allison. What types of businesses do you work with and how do you support them? Sure. Well, at Receptor Brands, we really do offer end-to-end services when it comes to strategic brand consulting and marketing. Um, but we really work with the entire spectrum of operators in cannabis um, from both licensed and the non-licensed side, uh, plant touching, obviously, or non-plant touching. And that's one of the reasons that I love being in the agency and in the service side of this business, because we really get to work with operators um, up and down the, the vertical of uh, cannabis production. So 
Um, we work with cultivators. Uh, we work with uh, business, to, uh, business to business clients who are really trying to, you know, drive that sales enablement from a customer perspective. We also work with wholesale brands, um, both uh, established and new. So newly licensed brands who are just trying to articulate what that wholesale brand is going to look like. Um, we also work with retailers, uh, multi-state operators, as well as single state operators, again, uh, established and new. And we also work with uh, people in ancillary services and um, uh, innovators and affiliates in the space as well. So um, we have some great clients who work in fintech and are creating you know, cashless payment systems for the industry, um, which is really exciting. So we're, we're really privilege to be able to work with um, clients and partners that uh, touch every every aspect of this category. It keeps it really fun and really interesting. And I have so much respect for all of them because it's, you know, it's not an easy category to enter, um, but it's really, uh, it's really primed with opportunity, um, you know, for the brave ones that are willing to jump in. Spence Labs is one of our longstanding clients. They're great partners. They came out of the financial um, industry and also the tech startup industry that's um, bumping in Chicago. <laughs> and they uh, have really found uh, an extraordinary way to offer underwritten payment solutions for the cannabis industry and really a full suite of products that really help this industry run and operate in a compliant and helpful way. I mean, um, how money moves through this category is is really important. And uh, I think the more access we can give people and the more user-friendly we make it to consumers, you know, the, the better this whole category um, will be. Everyone that works at a dispensary or adult use uh, store runs because the amount of cash that's, you know, in that facility is just, it's, it's just not right to put, you know, to put an industry at risk because governments aren't quite ready yet to, uh, to open up. Absolutely. It's, um, I think we'll see hopefully big changes there too uh, in the new year. I mean, it's certainly been a long time coming and I think this industry has certainly proven itself and its importance to the economy of um, the markets that have, you know, moved forward with regulation, but there's still a lot of, a lot of upside for, for everyone that moved early and, and for people that's, still have the opportunity to enter. What are your thoughts on the future of the industry? And you mentioned earlier about you thought 2022 would be a, a really innovative year. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, I don't, certainly none of us could have predicted what happened with the pandemic in 2020 and, you know, even what 2020 would, 2021 would look like or that we'd still be talking about it <laughs> at this time this year. But it's undeniable, you know, the impact in terms of the acceleration for the category in terms of normalization among consumers, but also the importance that um, this category has played and, you know, the the economies of um, different markets in terms of job creation and um, revenue. Um, it's, I, I will remember, I will never forget the, um, when we found out that cannabis had been deemed essential in 2020, it just felt like such a huge milestone. And I think it was an important signal to people within the category and outside of it that, um, you know, it was here to stay. And that it was an important part of the country's economy and, and where where this category was going. So it's been uh, a huge accelerator for where we are. And I think we've just reached this point where that normalization is starting to 
have an impact on the rate that more markets will also open up, but also consumers, consumers discovery of the category and what they're willing to try and how operators are approaching um, their business and, and the innovation pipelines. And, you know, it's great to have beverage sort of enter. It's great that we have so many delicious gummy brands and that the product experiences are getting better and better in terms of the user experience. But, you know, the world of beverage is uh, much broader than seltzer water. And the world of confections is someone who, you know, had worked with the Mars Wrigley business uh, in a past life is much bigger than um, just gummies. And so I think once brands sort of reach either a certain maturity level or you get those really ambitious innovators that come into the space um, and really start to proliferate some of these categories, uh, it'll be really exciting to see what happens. I think even within, you know, the flower and certainly the concentrate side of the business too, um, you know, there's a really exciting trend happening with infused pre-rolls out West. Um, the R&D in this industry has just been stifled for so long because of the federal regulation and the R&D that did exist in the pre-prohibition area was really specific to the needs of having operating in a category that was prohibited. That um, I think we've just sort of reached this point in normalization and maturity where we, we're going to see some really interesting things, uh, that, especially from a consumer packaged goods standpoint that start to meet the expectations that users have, you know, for every other category of consumables um, that they interact with during the day. Right. And it seems to me too that, um, well, form factors are, are you know, a, a major, a major thing where, you know, for example, uh, sublingual strips or transdermal patches, um, which also really leads into, you know, another trend, which is really microdosing. Right. So it's not only discrete, but it's also microdosing where you're able to put a patch on on your wrist or, or on your ankle and and really, you know, medicate and or consume all day um, or in smaller amounts. But I think as people learn how to better control their consumption, I, I think people will will also fall into uh, consuming certain and different types of form factors over time. Definitely. And I love that you brought up microdosing as well. Certainly, you know, from a product perspective, there's a lot more um, variety in the microdose space than there was even a few years ago. Um, but going back to our early conversation around consumers and how we define them in this category, you know, as microdosing becomes uh, more prevalent with consumers, you know, how we define a frequent user or someone that's a um, even a, light, medium, or heavy user moving forward might change, right? Um, it depends on whether we're talking about potency or frequency. But if I'm a microdoser that uses two or three times a day, I would say I'm a pretty active can cannabis user, right? So how you treat someone who has a different need and a different form, um, you know, being able to define them just by their the frequency of their usage behavior may become less relevant. I have bifurcated consumption into basically additive and subtractive. And the way I look at that is, I think of that as the way somebody would consume Advil or Tylenol. They they want to alleviate something from their day. And usually this is pain, right? So, so the subtractive is alleviating pain. The additive is more about enhancing or, or really um, creating some sort of aspirational moment where people are looking to enhance a particular moment. 
uh, whether it's painting, whether it's dancing, whether it's writing, whatever it is. And, and these are two really very different approaches to consumption, right? You know, one, I'm taking an aspirin, I, I need to alleviate something. The other, I'm taking something else and it's going to uplift me or, or enhance whatever it is I'm doing. And I think uh, that too, in its most simplest forms, helps us informs us as marketers how to serve this up to the consumer that's looking for either that additive or subtractive product. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. And, you know, you're really starting to talk about need states, right? So what, and, and whether that's subtractive or additive, you know, what is my need in this moment and how is this product going to help me achieve the outcome that I want? And, you know, the other important thing to think about, I think, as we talk about need states is, you know, as a consumer, just as a human being, I can experience multiple need states too, right? So even now, you know, I, it's, sometimes frustrating to hear um, people who are maybe less familiar with the category talk about consumers in a really binary way. Like I think the, you know, just the stoner motif is uh, we've progressed on from that a little bit, but I still get asked that question sometimes, you know, are you just marketing to stoners all day long? Um, But as a, as a user of anything, right. In some cases I might be looking for relief and on another day I might be looking for that more enhancing uh, product experience and I can still be the same consumer, right? I think the the pitfall sometimes we run into as marketers, because we're trying to be so intentional about defining that target audience and the business objective and getting that strategy really clear and singular, which is important, is that we start to think about people in a really binary way and assume that if you, you know, have, if we're creating something for someone that has a particular need state that they can't have other needs too, or that they don't engage in the, with this category in a multitude of ways, because at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're all people and, you know, we don't uh, walk around with a single objective all day long. Right. So um, it's a really interesting way to think about um, consumers in terms of their needs. And then all, you know, also as they have uh, multiple. I often think about need states. I think about rituals. I think about habits. I think about all those types of things, which, which really um, are important, you know, in, in terms of, of really consuming anything for that matter and becoming a loyal consumer. It's intriguing to think through it on this level. And as marketers, you know, wanting to serve something up that, you know, delivering on its promise. You know, one of the things that um, we talk about most with our clients for that people come to us, usually when we work with clients who are early in their product development stage. And one thing that, you know, we pride ourselves on at Receptor Brands is when we talk about our end-to-end services, you know, we certainly help design um, great brands and great brand experiences. But we also are unique, I think, that we have some food and beverage engineers on our team. We really work from a business strategy and brand strategy really far upstream, especially with newly licensed or, you know, new to market companies um, in terms of what should they make? How should they enter the category with what kind of product form? And many times people come to us, you know, a little further along in their business journey, but getting to that point in their product experience where they're like, what is the core benefit that we should communicate to our product uh, about our product to consumers? You know, what if we can only fit, you know, our, primary benefit and one reason to believe on our package, what should it be from the multitude of things we could say, right? Everyone's going out there trying to make a better, I think, product experience in cannabis than existed, you know, maybe before, or they're trying to come out with at least a parody product or something that um, is excellent in some way. 
but there's always all these things that you could say about your product and really understanding like what's that one thing that's going to differentiate you that really does meet a particular target audience, um, target audience's needs. Uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And, um, it can really make the difference on, you know, whether your brand's going to stand out and your product's going to stand out in shelf, you know, for people over the other things that they could buy because dispensaries, they're fun. There's a lot of things people can choose from and they're changing all the time. What's the most favorite thing about working in, in the cannabis industry? Oh, I there are so many things. <laughs> Let's see. Um, my favorite thing about working in the cannabis industry, honestly, is the the energy from the entrepreneurs who find in this space, I, you know, I, I know it's a bit cliche now to liken it to the dot-com era and, and all of that, but um, everyone, I feel, even if you are a mature in a mature market or considered in quotes, a mature brand is still sort of at a startup level in terms of where this category is or what the trajectory of your company would be. Right. Um, I don't know that we still know who the winners or the losers are in this category from the early movers. Um, and I just find that it, you might hear a lot of stories about cannabis and the competitive nature of it. Um, but I've, I've actually found quite the opposite, that there is a really robust community of entrepreneurs in this space. Everyone believes in the opportunity and the power of the plant and and. Um, what's possible for this category. People get into it for different reasons, but um, there's no shortage of excitement and enthusiasm for what's possible in cannabis. Um, and within this industry, I think there's a great cohort of entrepreneurs and um, people who are taking a lot of risk to be in this space. And I just found it to be a really fantastic place to operate and to build our business as well. I still think cannabis is a little bit of a team sport, you know, very... <laughs> It's very infrequent that you find a category that's built on vertically integrated businesses in the way that cannabis um, had started. And I think, you know, we might be moving away from that a little bit now. But that means that a lot of people came in and had to start building capabilities and services and um, things that might not have been their forte in the beginning. And I think there's a really nice cohort of uh, the right partners, you know, if you can find them to build a, a successful company in cannabis. It's a great community. It really is. It really is. And in many ways, I, I found it to be, um, you know, a group of outsiders that have come together, you know, a group of misfits that in some way have come together to uh, form a family and a community. But I, I think generally speaking, uh, we, we, we all are, are seeking the same thing and we, we look to protect each other, uh, you know, in that end goal. We, uh, you know, coming full circle to the uh, story of how Receptor uh, began that I shared with you at the top of the podcast, we often call ourselves at Receptor Brands the land of misfit toys. <laughs> we we really pride ourselves on the diversity of our backgrounds. And we have people that came from, uh, you know, certainly CPG backgrounds. And as I mentioned, engineers and strategists and creatives, but people who are also involved in the category, you know, pre-prohibition and, and then also entered later. Um, but we have all sort of found each other, uh, in this place where we were excited about the opportunity. Um, and we really believed, we have a shared belief around the value of cannabis, uh, to improve the lives of people. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what we're all trying to go out there and demonstrate to everyone, you know, and the best way that we can do it is to, uh, build fantastic brands for consumers. You're absolutely right. <laughs>
You're absolutely right. So now perhaps my most serious question of our chat, if you were a cannabis infused gummy, what flavor would you be? <laughs> um, that is a tough one, David, <laughs> because A, I really like gummies and, uh, I, well, maybe a margarita. I really like margaritas too. So if we could bring those two things together, <laughs> that would be a winner for me. Wow. In, in closing things out, Allison, is, is there anything else you'd like people to know about you, your personal mission, uh, your message? Um, your company. Any final thoughts before we close out the show? Sure. Well, I think just to build it, you know, on our last topic around the community in this category, I mean, we really did create receptor brands because we believe that cannabis can improve the lives of people. And, you know, the way that we approach the space is to help companies transform their relationship between their brand and their customers, you know, and whether that means helping get that product to market or helping scale your brand to, to new markets um, or helping you, uh, get introduced to the category, you know, as a new licensee or a new operator. Um, and personally, and I believe, you know, our, our team shares this philosophy. We still feel like this category um, needs every kind of operator, big, small, and everything in between, you know, plant touching and non-plant touching uh, to prove the potential of this category. Um, and there is a community of, you know, like-minded entrepreneurs and, and partners like us um, that are here to help help entrants succeed. So uh, we're, we're here to help this category be the best that it can be. Lots of insight and experience. Thank you, Allison, so much. Thank you, David, again, so much for having me. It's, it's always fun to talk about the category and, and geek out about strategy, too. <laughs> it, it really is. Well, that said, we're out of time for today's podcast. You can find more about Allison Disney, her insights, and her firm at ReceptorBrands.com. Again, a big thank you to Allison and you, the listening audience. Thank you and good day.